Welcome to the Eco News Report. I'm your host this week, Tom Wheeler, Executive Director of the Environmental Protection Information Center, or as we are better known in these parts, EPIC. And we are talking about composting today with two experts on the subject. We have Lila Richardson, Project Manager at Zero Waste Humboldt. Welcome to the show, Lila. Thank you. And we also have Daniel Holzapple, the Community Garden Manager at the Blue Lake Rancheria. Welcome, Daniel. Thanks for having me on, Tom. All right, Daniel, I want to start with you, and I want to talk about what the Blue Lake Rancheria is doing with its compost program. And let me just set the stage by saying the Blue Lake Rancheria is really cool to me. As a non-tribal citizen, I'm always looking to the Blue Lake Rancheria for inspiration, whether it is the microgrid system that the tribe has kind of shepherded for our region and it's now being replicated at the at the airport and other places and we also have this cool compost program which goes back and improves the soil and helps the community garden produce food for the rancheria so tell me about the community garden then we can talk about compost and all the different things that you do to reuse this waste stream yeah so the community garden so Deluviwi community garden was in operation before I started. I started in 20, March of 2020. The garden had been staffed part-time by rancheria employees for a couple of years. The primary purpose of the garden is to grow food for the tribe's elders nutrition program, which provides free meals for tribal elders and non-native community members in need on a monthly basis. And so the garden grows food that goes into those meals, essentially. So I jumped in March of 2020, and so I was the first person that got hired on full-time to manage the garden. And the first year was really good. We grew a couple thousand pounds of produce, a lot of corn, summer squash, winter squash, leafy greens, ton of tomatoes. Went really well. And then last year, we grew a little under a thousand pounds, but we were focusing a little more on leafy greens instead of you know squash and corn. So kind of reduce the weight. We also got a small flock of Caterney quail. So we've been raising those for egg production. So sometimes elders will come and pick up a couple dozen quail eggs. We were also selling those to the restaurants here at the rancheria at the casino. So they were using those in the sushi restaurant. So yeah, again, like I said, the primary purpose of the garden is the production of food for the Elders Nutrition Program. Though in the last year and a half, we've started also selling produce at our farm's new farm stand at the garden just to the general public as well. So that's been really fun. Very cool. So March of 2020, that must have been one heck of a time to start this job. I think other things may have been going on at that time too. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, there were a few things going on in the world right then. Yeah. So, so, so tell me a little bit about yourself. Are, did you come to this position with gardening or farming experience or, or was this a learn on the job type adventure? Totally. Yeah. No, I came into it with some experience. I got my associates down in my hometown, Santa Cruz, a community at Cabrillo Community College in organic crop production and management. So horticulture degree. So after that, I was working retail nursery for a little while and also doing state parks, which was kind of how I got really deep into native plant propagation. Then I cruised up here to Humboldt and got my bachelor's in Native American studies at HSU. That was with a, an emphasis on environment and natural resources. So I'm, I've been for years just really interested in native plants, especially ones with traditional uses, especially food plants. And I, I just love the diversity of plants that you can eat that are native to this state or to this region. So that was kind of my early inspiration. So anyway, 
I polished off my degree at HSU and a couple months later, I saw this job opening for managing the community garden. I was like, okay, yeah, I'm applying for that. Yeah. That, that <laughs> so. seems to really perfectly fit your, your two academic interests in horticulture yeah, and Native it's, it's American studies. Very cool. Do you have any native plants that you're growing in the community garden or alternatively, is there a favorite native plant that has traditionally been used as a food stuff up here that, that you just geek over? Totally. Yeah. So to the first question, yeah, we've got a good number of native plants in the garden right now. We've got some camas, some soap root, oh, a couple different native bunch grasses, a couple annuals like tarweed, it's a media, and one or two, other, a couple others, um, a couple sages, oh, organ grape, blue elderberry, woodland strawberry, yerba buena around here, I think uh, most people call it. A handful of others. As far as a favorite, though, I guess I've always been a sucker for soap root. Chlorogallum pomeridianum is Latin. It's a fascinating plant. It's a geophyte, so it's a bulb, and it does grow around here. It grows for a good portion of California, I think. So it's a geophyte. Um, you see it on the sides of like the 101 a lot or on the side of the 299. It kind of looks like a low-growing lily almost with very like wavy leaves, and they have these wonderful tall flower stalks that have little white flowers that open at dusk. And the plant is traditionally used, it's got multiple uses. It can be baked as a food. The fibers in the bulb can be used to make brushes. It can be used as a soap. I've heard that it can be used to help heal poison oak injuries. And then blue, traditionally, it was also used as a fish stunner. So you would mash up the, the bulb into a paste and get the paste into the into a waterway, a pond, for example, and it would temporarily block oxygen intake and fish gills. So they'd float to the surface, but then it would wear off fairly quickly. So a very an incredibly useful plant and a beautiful one, too. And we grow a lot of it at the garden. Very, very cool. When you were talking about the uh, the name of the plant that was the fish stunner, is that also the the soap root? Yeah, yeah, that's all. Yeah, that's all the soap. Wait, root. The, the, yeah. this plant does like nine different things. So, it's incredible. Plant of many uses. Yeah, very cool. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. so let, let's talk then uh, about the compost system because you know Blue Lake Rancheria produces a lot of food waste, either from its restaurants or grain, the mash coming off of. I think it's called Mash. I don't really know anything about brewing. Off of Powers Creek Brewery, the um, new brewery associated with Blue Lake Rancheria. And, you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, that stuff may have just gone to a landfill where it would break down and create methane gas, which is a global warming forcing gas. Very, very, very powerful stuff, much stronger than carbon dioxide in terms of its greenhouse gas potential. But now it's being turned back into soil. So, so tell me about the compost system and closing this loop. You're, you're producing the food. It's going to go to people in the rancheria, and then the waste is going to come back to the farm and continue to improve the soil. There was already some composting going on at the rancheria. It was a combination of some food scraps from the casino kitchen, commercial kitchens, and landscaping materials, so grass clippings, fall decorations. So, you know, the casino would buy pumpkins and uh, straw bales for Halloween decor, and that would usually go out to the compost pile as well. So what wound up happening when I started, obviously the pandemic hit for the compost system. So 
So I took the opportunity to rebuild our compost piles. Um, so I built a three bin system using recycled pallets. Pretty straightforward. You know, anyone can do it at home as long as you've got maybe, oh, you know, 10 square feet of space in your yard. And then our landscaping department would also bring in grass clippings, fall leaves, that sort of thing as well. So then Powers Creek Brewery opened up and we started composting the spent grain from there. And that rather rapidly started filling up our compost piles. So I had to expand our three-bin system to make it so I could turn it with our garden tractor. Because when you're putting roughly 350 pounds of brewery grain on the pile a week, on top of that, all the brown materials you need, there's no way one person is hand-turning that as regularly as it needs. So we expanded that, started taking in the brewery grain, and then... We applied for a USDA community composting and waste reduction grant last in 2021, and that has helped us um, get some supplies and spend more time on the compost system. So we got some new waste bins for the casino kitchen for the Elders Nutrition Program to make it a little easier for us to pick up the materials. We got a scale so we can start weighing the materials that we're adding in. We got a uh, chipper shredder so that we can start breaking down woodier materials. So tree branches or sunflower stems, corn stalks, that sort of thing. Cardboard as well. So we can have those as ready sources of brown material for the compost pile. Otherwise, for example, with the corn stalks or the sunflower stalks, the alternative would be having to chop them up into small pieces using loppers, which is really labor intensive, obviously. So in addition to all of that, we, through the grant, we've established a couple partnerships. One is with Honeycomb Coffee here in Blue Lake, a really nice little coffee shop in town. And so we pick up their, their spent coffee grounds, tea bags, eggshells, that sort of thing um, on a weekly basis. And that's usually about 25 pounds a week. And then we've also partnered up with the Trinidad Rancheria and the Mad River Alliance. And so we're planning on doing some green waste pickup days with them this summer, so we, you know, going out to Trinidad Rancheria, for example, collecting green waste, bringing it back to the garden, processing it, and putting it in the compost pile. Ah, very cool. So, Lila, I want to bring you into the conversation now. So you are the project manager at Zero Waste Humboldt. If folks have been living under a rock and haven't heard about Zero Waste Humboldt, can you tell us a little bit about your organization? Yes. So Zero Waste Humble is a nonprofit and is the only organization on the Redwood Coast specializing in zero waste solutions. Zero waste emphasizes in prevention in the first place, waste in whatever form that is. And Zero Waste Humble provides three types of services, public education, advocacy and policy development, training and technical assistance. So those are our three main things that we do. And we definitely have to work with a lot of grants and to help provide these kind of services. So I imagine that your organization is interested in composting as well, because it is a large component of our waste stream. Can you tell us about what we're hoping to accomplish and what we're mandated to accomplish under state law for diverting this organic material away from landfills and hopefully back into things like community gardens? Yeah, with the the new laws, the SB 1383, this is a project you can find that. And actually in the Eco News this month, somebody from Zero Waste Humble wrote an article. We just work with the city of Arcata to conduct outreach to Arcata food businesses. 
about current food waste reductions and all these new laws. And like I said, the article was written in the Eco News, and we have actually a lot of helpful information on our website that can be found, individual, business, different things like that. But the, the most important part definitely is that a lot of people see, you know, the new laws and they're like, oh no, what do I have to do as an individual? And as much as this is important as an, an individual to start, the main thing is the grocery stores and the whole food vendors, they have to start right now. And that was our main focus with the city of Arcata to make sure that they they know the new laws, they understand how to write an agreement with the organizations to make sure that they are compliant with composting. And also it's not just grocery stores, it's whole food vendors as well. And then the second tier of this, the SB 1383 is restaurants and schools. And that doesn't go into effect until 2024. But we also, with the project for the city of Arcata, we helped schools and restaurants try to, you know, be prepared and get the momentum going. So yeah, we've done quite a bit of projects and we're right now working with three schools to try to get them ready for these new laws going to effect as well. The Eco News Report, and we are talking about composting with Lila Richardson of Zero Waste Humboldt and Daniel Hossapple from the Blue Lake Rancheria. All right, let's take the conversation in two different directions. One, things that individuals can do and, and one that is focused on maybe a restaurant owner or somebody else, a, a large producer of organic waste, who's now going to have to figure out how to divert that. So let's go with them first. So let, let's say I'm a restaurant. What are the sort of options I have currently for how to deal with all of the you know butt ends of broccoli that I don't want to serve or carrot tops or or all of the other stuff that ends up kind of otherwise filling up a, a, a waste stream? Yeah, um, definitely composting. There were some restaurants that actually used those stocks in their food, like to make soup and things like that, or, or work with farmers to help give farmers their feed, their, their scraps and feed their, um, their animals and livestock and definitely things that we did to talk to, you know, the grocery stores and the bigger restaurants with higher volume is preventing food waste in the first place. You, you preserve before it spoils, you either eat it or preserve it, freeze it, anything like that. Take, take inventory things you already have. So you don't overbuy. make sure, you know, everyone in your business kind of is on the same page because this, this is big. I mean, when everyone's on the same page, you end up saving a lot more money. So you're not over overspending. And um, especially right now with all the prices, everything going up. Yeah. Every, you know, having everyone in your business be on the same page when it comes to food waste, because we want to be able to save not only food from going to landfill, but save money in the long run. Wonderful. And and maybe we can have J Daniel jump back in here. D Daniel, you talked about uh, brown versus green waste in a composting system. Can you kind of define what those terms are and, and what is this mix that we're hoping to accomplish and, and why do you need both of these things in a composting system? Totally, yeah. So the whole browns, greens thing when, when we're talking about compost is referring to carbon-rich materials and nitrogen-rich materials. So... Carbon-rich materials are your shredded paper, your shredded cardboard, dry brown leaves from trees, to a certain extent dry grass, clippings, 
straw, wood chips, that sort of material. So those are all high carb materials that contain high concentrations of carbon. Then high nitrogen materials, those are your vegetable scraps. Oh, the brewery grain, for example, manure, so chicken manure or um, steer manure, horse manure, that sort of thing. And so basically in a a healthy compost system has a, um, a ratio of those two types of materials. Generally, that's a 30 to one. So that's 30 parts carbon heavy materials, one part nitrogen heavy materials. So there's different ways to get those both into your compost pile. We at our garden tend to do kind of a, um, a lasagna style sandwiching of the material. So a layer of nitrogen material. So like brewery grain, we'll kind of rake that out over the top of the compost pile and then throw down a layer of say shredded cardboard or straw or wood chip and then another layer of layer of the brew grain etc and then those just get mixed more as you do as you turn the pile over the coming months so yeah basically the reason you need both those materials is the whole thing that's happening in an aerobic composting system is aerobic microorganisms so oxygen breathing microbes are Eat, consuming these materials. And then as we're talking about microbes, you know, they consume these materials, they die, their bodies break down, and that cycle just keeps repeating itself. So what you wind up with is all the materials that you've put in get basically converted into plant available nutrients because carbon and nitrogen, as well as the other nutrients that are inherently in a compost pile, potassium, phosphorus, calcium, magnesium, what have you. Um, These are all essential plant nutrients. Basically, they go from being in a condition where they're not accessible to plant roots. So say, you know, a, a broccoli stem, like you mentioned earlier, a plant root can't just bury itself into a bear into an old broccoli stem and start absorbing those nutrients. It has to be broken down. So that's what we're doing. We're creating an environment that is perfect for the growth and development of uh, microbial colonies in your compost pile. And then, of course, there's the macro invertebrates like the worms or beetles, what have you, that are also helping to break that down. But then obviously those organisms digest these materials, they excrete them, and then that's also broken down by even smaller organisms. And of course, fungi play a role in this as well, helping to break down you know, often woodier materials. That's one of the wonderful or magical qualities of fungi is that they can break down uh, things like wood much more effectively than really any other organism. So, yeah, so we're creating this perfect environment for all these organisms to consume materials that we're putting in. So some of the other things besides carbon and nitrogen that you need, obviously, are moisture because we're talking about microbes and they're not exactly drought tolerant. (laughs) (laughs) Uh You know, the microbes in a a compost pile. I'll need a certain measure of moisture. Generally, rule of thumb for a good compost pile, you want the moisture level to be at a point where if you take a handful of your compost and you squeeze it in your hand, you want maybe, you know, a couple little drops of moisture to come out of it. I, I like to compare it to a, a fairly well wrung out sponge. And you need to try and maintain that moisture level. And then the other thing that you need is, is air. And obviously, if you have a big compost pile, like, you know, four foot by four foot, let's say, the bottom middle of that pile is not going to be getting as much oxygen if it's just sitting there as the outer surface of the pile. So really the point is to make sure that there's air getting into the center of the pile. And you can do this a couple different ways. One is the one that a lot of us are used to just turning a compost pile. So folks maybe have 
those tumbler style composters that, you know, by using the tumbler, you're aerating all the materials, getting mixed thoroughly, getting moisture in the bin, uh, evenly distributed and getting air all throughout. You can turn with like pitchforks or with tractors. And then what a lot of larger scale operations do is they'll have perforated PVC pipes that go down through the bottom of the compost piles. And those are hooked up to air pumps. And so that's forcing air into the bottom middle of the piles. And so what all those factors wind up doing is they create, they help build up heat in the pile. And the heat is basically just the by, one of the byproducts of that, that decay process, that microbial digestion of the materials. And one of the great things about hot composting is, so you're getting your pile up to temperatures of 130 to 160 degrees Fahrenheit. And those temperatures, that temperature range is the ideal temperature range for a lot of these microorganisms. And especially on the high end, it's also a temperature, temperature range where weed seeds, the eggs of pest insects, pathogens, that sort of thing get killed. And so that's one of the benefits of hot composting is you know, say if you're composting weedy plants that have maybe set seed or something, or maybe there were snails or slugs and materials that you threw in the compost pile, their seeds, their eggs, what have you, aren't going to wind up surviving to the point of where you have your finished compost. And so they're not going to go back into the garden and flourish. That makes a ton of sense. And I've also heard that a a, a sign that you can tell that you are doing a good job with your compost system is that it doesn't have a distinct kind of rotten smell. I, I think a lot of us probably have our, our compost bins that we have seen on the counter that have become anaerobic where there is not moisture or not air getting in and too much, too much moisture, too much nitrogen. And you, you get that rotty, gross, bad breath, decaying matter smell with a well-run compost system. It, it, it doesn't have a, a, a bad odor. Is that right, Daniel? Yeah, basically, yeah. If a compost pile is, say, too wet or has too much nitrogen materials, it's going to have, like you say, that that off-putting smell. Uh, Sometimes it'll have a very ammonia-heavy smell. But actually, it's interesting. You know, you can kind of figure out what's wrong with your compost pile just based off of the smell. And there's lots of guides online, for example, or in books that say, hey, you know, if your compost pile, pile smells like this, it's an indicator that you need to make this change or that change. So yeah, a well-managed compost pile that has the right ratios of carbon and nitrogen materials, it's regularly aerated, it has the right moisture levels, it should smell like good, rich compost. And, you know, initially there might be a little bit of an off smell because you've just added the new materials, the, colon- the microbial colonies are establishing themselves. Yeah, it, it should generally start to turn into that really nice, rich composty smell fairly quickly. Another factor that I forgot to mention is for hot composting, uh, scale is an important factor. So you're trying to build up the heat in the pile, like I mentioned. So that's one of the reasons why one builds a compost bin, for example, because you're able to create some height with the pile. So usually, I mean, this is kind of, this is kind of rough, but three by three, so three foot cube is kind of an ideal size for like a small compost pile. Basically the production from the microbial digestion going on in the bottom of the pile, that heat rises up through the pile, especially if you have like forced air going into it. And it basically add that heat gets added to the heat production that's going on higher up in the pile. And so by the time you kind of, that heat has risen all the way to the top of the pile, you've reached those that ideal temperature range of 130, 160 degrees. So 
So scale is an important factor. And this is also ties into why turning your pile is so important because obviously, you know, materials on the surface of your compost pile aren't going to reach the same temperature as something in like the dead center of the pile because, you know, the surface is being exposed to the elements, the winds, sun, rain, what have you. So turning the pile is really important so that all the materials in your compost pile have an opportunity to reach those temperatures and break down fully. All right. Lila, let's close the show with talking about how folks can compost at their own house. Daniel mentioned some of these tumbler style bins. Do you have a favorite home composting system that you would recommend to folks? Yeah, I definitely like the tumbling. That's what we use at home. It's it's easy and I, I definitely love the smell because that, you know, like you said, Tom, like that's when you know you're doing a good job. But yeah, the tumbling, there's 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 so many different options when it comes to composting. And I know for some people it could be just it seems like a lot. But honestly, if you just start, it, it will just go. It will just seem easy after you keep doing it. But other people use just a compost pile of worms. That's pretty popular around here using worms. Or chicken, just having your chickens eat it and they, you know, they create their own compost just by eating it and through their, their poop. Also buying a unit, if that's something you want to do too, that is a definitely more expensive route. But the tumbler, I think, especially in Humboldt County, is just easy. You put it in there, you know, turn it a couple of times. And if you're an Arcata resident, you can purchase a discounted backyard compost for $25. So that's, that's a really cool uh, thing they offer. And honestly, YouTube, I know that's how I started just watching YouTube videos to get familiar with composting methods, just to, just to be, I mean, when you're in a home, if you have an apartment, they have so many different options for you and the space you have. Some people have tiny spaces, composting can work. And if composting at home doesn't work for you, we have really great businesses locally, like Full Cycle Compost and the local worm guy. And then also, if you're a co-op member, you can pay for a membership to get your compost. You can deliver your compost there to the co-op as well. Oh, very cool. That's the first time I've heard about the co-op. Thank you, North Coast Co-op, for that service. All right. Well, I hope everyone is inspired from listening to this show to go out, grab all of that food and yard waste that you might have, and to start your own composting pile so that you can you know, not get rid of all these nutrients that would otherwise go into a landfill and to get them back into your yard, whether it is to make your flower beds pop a little bit more, whether it is to get heads of of broccoli that are even bigger and fresher and more delicious. Composting is, is a really fantastic way to help your garden out and to help our planet out, help Again, divert organic waste from our waste stream to prevent it from becoming methane that will kill us all through climate change. <laughs> so that's, again, what it's all about is is preventing mass extinction here on planet Earth. And thank you again to Daniel and to Lila for joining me on this episode. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, thanks so much, Tom. So this has been another episode of the Eco News Report. Join us again next week on this time and channel for more environmental news from the North Coast of California. 